Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. It's Alison Savas and welcome to another Antipodes quarterly market update. We're going to focus on two key topics for this episode. In part one, our usual quarterly global equities outlook update. And in the second part, we'll turn our focus to gold. After a lacklustre performance through most of 2022, gold is back in the headlines. We're going to dig into why and share some of our investment team's views and due diligence on the yellow metal. Joining me is Ramiz Sadakot, Portfolio Manager and Head of Antipodes Quant, Macro and Currency. Ramiz, it's been some time since we've had you on the podcast, so it's great to have you back. Thanks, Alison. So for those of you listening, Alison and I actually sit opposite each other in the office, so I think this is a a great opportunity to share some of our our day-to-day conversations. (laughs) That is so true, actually, Ramiz. We, we should probably have a, a weekly podcast on our, on our market musings. I digress. Let's get back to get down to business. Let's start with the state of global equity markets as we settle into the new year. All eyes continue to be locked on the Fed as it tries to stick the perfect landing. Europe is teetering on the brink of recession and China is managing its way out of COVID zero. Now, if we can start in the West, inflation is falling economic activity is deteriorating and monetary policy is tight, you know, particularly so in the US. So our base case remains a recession in the West. But what I think our listeners may be interested in hearing is, are we approaching the bottom of the economic cycle in the West? Yeah, I mean, there's so there's no doubt that economic activity is very weak. Um, so one of the indicators that we like to look at, a, a good proxy for activity is the Purchasing Managers Index or the PMI for short. And it gives us a a pretty good gauge on the level of current and future activity across the manufacturing and and service sector. So when we look at the US, the PMI has been contracting for the last seven months, which is the longest contraction since 2008 financial crisis. And if we look across Europe uh, more broadly, it's a pretty similar story. I think the difference there is that activity seems to have been to have stabilized, but, you know, it's at a very low level. Now, to answer your question, I mean... We're not really at the bottom yet. I mean, when you look at the forward-looking indicators, they still paint a pretty pretty bleak picture. So, I mean, to give you a couple of examples, uh, goods consumption goods consumption rather is contracting, but new orders are still deteriorating, uh, which is a, a negative read on future demand. New home sales they're down, but building permits are still falling, so that trend isn't reversing. And in December, you know, existing home sales they were down thirty four percent year on year. And they've been declining for the last 11 months. So to put that number into context, that's 4% worse during the heart of the GFC. And it's the longest stretch of sales declines over the last 20-something years. So those are a few examples. Um, when we look across a, a broader set of data, the, the message is it's fairly consistent in that forward-looking indicators are signalling weaker economic activity in the future. Now... Is this a surprise to us? Mm, not really. Uh, when you consider money supply growth has meaningly fallen in the West as post-COVID stimulus has faded. So in the US, we have QT. Um, balance sheet expansion has ceased in Europe. Um, and of course, we've got high interest rates, uh, which are beginning to bite on uh, credit growth. So in our analysis, inflation will continue to fall, but it's going to remain elevated for some time. Economic could economic growth could contract in the West through 2023 and unemployment could actually rise faster than what the market is currently expecting. And against a backdrop of 
call it above target inflation, we think policymakers will increasingly lean on fiscal stimulus to fight a recession, spending that we think will ultimately be directed towards carbonisation, decarbonisation, supply chain onshoring and infrastructure. Now, Western central banks, I mean, they are in a very precarious position. Um, On one hand, they need to manage inflation. On the other, the risks to the economy and financial market stability are growing. So we have these two competing priorities. And I think as this competition plays out, we can expect to see much greater volatility in the economic cycle, which in turn will weigh on equity market multiples. Mm. It's interesting to consider what the Fed may do from here. Rates in the US increased very quickly from 0.25% at the beginning of last year to you know to now 4.75%. So conditions are tight. As we've just discussed, economic activity is deteriorating. And on top of that, some of the stickier elements of inflation are starting to fade. So, for example, around rent and energy prices. Does that give the Fed wiggle room to cut rates? You know, can the Fed engineer a soft landing? Yeah, we think, we think the reason why the Fed hasn't paused yet is because it's focused on the labour market and it, it wants to avoid a, um, a, wage, a wage price spiral. So I like to think of the Fed's job as driving a car or the economy as smoothly down a freeway as possible. And all of a sudden, you know, COVID, you know, an obstacle just appears out of nowhere and they veer hard to the left to avoid it. Now they're trying to correct course, but we think by veering way too hard to the right. So the Fed is, the Fed's compounding its error of too much stimulus during COVID to now running monetary policy too tight as that stimulus fades. So things are going to be wobbly for a while until that car stabilises. But the the inherent problem here is that the Fed is focusing on employment and employment is a trailing indicator. So when you look across economic downturns over over quite a long history, there's a fairly predictable pattern as to how things play out. So I like to use the acronym HOPE and, you know, yes, I'm I'm aware of the, the irony, but first it's housing, then it's orders, profits, and then finally E for employment. You know, after all, companies only let staff go when profits are under threat. So focusing on the labour market, it's like driving that car down the freeway while looking in the rearview mirror. Now, we're definitely starting to see softer conditions in some pockets of the labour market. So, for example, in the the tech space, but broadly unemployment still remains at record lows and with almost two job openings per unemployed person. uh, The participation rate hasn't quite recovered to pre-COVID trend levels. I mean, we are seeing the emergence of a skills mismatch. Um, you know, that's where the supply of labour doesn't necessarily match the skills in demand. And it is a particular issue in the US and the UK. Now, that that's something that can keep vacancies high and keep upward pressure on wages, even if unemployment is elevated. So that's the, the problem that, you know, the Fed is grappling with. And that's why they haven't really responded yet to a, a deteriorating economic backdrop. So... Look, can the the Fed engineer a soft landing? I'll I'll never say never, but if the skills mismatch is pervasive and and persistent, we could see the Fed run much tighter policy to rebalance the labour market to bring wages under control. And and that increases the risk of reinforcing a policy error and dragging the US economy into a deeper recession. So the macro backdrop 
in the West still looks negative. But given global equities fell almost 20% in US dollar terms in 2022, do you think this negative top-down view has already been factored into earnings forecasts and equity prices? Yeah, not, not quite in the US. I mean, the, the average starting valuation of US equities today is around 18 times forward earnings. But earnings forecasts for the next four months, they've only fallen 4% from recent peaks. And current analyst forecasts are still implying that upcoming earnings will remain flat compared to last year. So if we use prior recessions as a guide, earnings forecasts in the US could fall at least another 10%, which would lift current valuations of US equities close to 19, time, 19 20 times. And that's still a 15% premium to historical valuations. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that we're negative on the entire US market. I mean, there are pockets of opportunity. So, for example, in the ERP space, which stands for Enterprise Resource Planning, uh, we hold Oracle. Um, you know, they've recently announced overall revenue growth of 18% year on year, um, you know, led by growing adoption of its cloud infrastructure. And, and another one of our key portfolio holdings is Merck, which we like for its diversified earnings and lower patent cliff risk relative to its competitors. And that's a good point. A lot of what we've discussed so far, you know, really does sound very bearish for the US. But we're not avoiding the entire market. You know, I think the message there is the key is to remain selective. Yeah, I mean, that's right. It's we, I mean, across the portfolio, we remain underweight, expensive stocks that are geared to the economic cycle. So, for example, expensive domestic cyclicals or expensive tech stocks like Apple, where it's becoming increasingly evident that their earnings aren't as defensive as we once thought, given their increasing sensitivity to the, the consumer spending cycle. And look, I mean, while we are expecting a recession in the US, when we're not really expecting a deep consumer recession like we saw in the GFC. The the balance sheet of the US household is in pretty good shape. They've rebuilt home equity following the GFC and they are somewhat insulated against high mortgage rates given most mortgages are fixed. Now, if US equities are still at the start of an earnings downgrade cycle, where do you see European and Chinese stocks? I think uh, both are much further into their earnings downgrade cycle. I mean, in Europe, earnings estimates, they've fallen... 13% versus 20% in prior cycles. Assuming downgrades reach a similar level, I mean, Europe is probably priced at 13 times forward earnings, which, you know, is on par with its historical average. And arguably, you know, the economic outlook in Europe, it looks incrementally better in 2023 as the worst of the, the energy crisis has passed and, and energy prices have, have softened. And China China looks even more attractive. I mean, Chinese companies listed in, in Hong Kong and the US you know, they've seen earnings estimates steadily decline by 16% over the last two years as, as foreign sentiment towards China has, has, has been particularly bleak. And that compares to 6% in a typical downgrade cycle. So when you look at valuations, foreign-listed Chinese businesses are now on just 10 times forward earnings, which is a 20% a discount uh, relative to history. And we have seen a really decent rally in Chinese equities over the last few months. So I guess the big question in China is, is, is there further upside? Yeah, we think so. Valuations look particularly attractive in the context of a very attractive um, or a rather very positive policy setting. Um, China has structurally reopened. There's, there's really no going back now. Money supply is increasing at its fastest pace in the last five years. It's, it's very different to what we're seeing in the West where money supply is contracting. 
the increase in money supply in China, it hasn't fully translated into activity because of the lockdowns, but as China reopens, it's it's going to be felt more broadly through the economy. And and we've seen this movie before. You know, following lockdowns in the West, there was this enormous pent-up demand from the household. And in China, accumulated savings have grown to 14% off a normal year's consumption. And that's something that's going to further support activity when the economy reopens. And the other thing to note is, is the market is beginning to appreciate that the regulatory crackdowns on internet platform businesses and the hardline property reform, those, those issues are now behind us. doesn't mean we're back to the races necessarily, particularly in property. I mean, we're still working off the excess from the last several years where we estimate that construction was running around 20% above real demand. But you have to remember that 50% of household wealth is tied up in property. That's more so than uh, the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, and we think that that policymakers will rebalance the sector via reducing supply rather than letting prices collapse. So in the portfolio, we're focused on domestic advertising businesses and various service businesses. So a couple of examples are Alibaba and Baidu, both advertising businesses, uh, property services company, um, country garden services, and Midea, which is a aircon and Wackworth manufacturer, and we have some some travel exposures as well. So to wrap up part one, on the one hand, we have recession in the West and risk of policy error rising in the US, but on the other hand, a more positive policy setting in China, which leaves China well positioned in 2023. So where does that leave investors? Look, global equities have fallen a lot already, but that doesn't mean that there isn't more to come. Uh, We think it's inevitable that we're going to see a lot of bear market rallies during this time, especially as investors begin to anticipate a a policy pivot from the Fed. Now, that day, it's coming. Uh, We don't think we're quite there yet. And certainty around this is, 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 is going to ebb and flow. So right now... Investors, they, they need to be mindful that Western central banks are grappling with two competing priorities, managing, managing inflation while sustaining economic growth and financial market stability. And it's likely that we are going to see a lot more volatility in the economic cycle going forward. So we, we need to be very wary of getting sucked into these bear market rallies. And at the end of the day, money supply growth in the US is now contracting on a year-on-year basis. And that's something unusual and it is a, a very negative impulse. And this contraction, it, it's going to take time to manifest itself in economic activity, inflation and financial markets. So at Antipodes, we're really focused on resilient businesses that can take profitable market share in a backdrop of more volatile inflation and companies which are relatively better positioned to weather tougher economic conditions. And we continue to be quite wary of um, of sectors that have attracted too much capital or business models that were premised on a zero cost of finance. Okay, it's time to talk gold. Ramiz, this is such an interesting part of the market and not, not just purely from an investing perspective, But also when you look at much of the commentary, there's wild price predictions from the perennial gold bugs and all sorts of theories surrounding gold and central banks and digital currencies. So it can be a real rabbit hole. But before we go any further, what is the role of gold in the world today? It's a good question. Uh, It's one we've been really thinking a lot about. Um, I I think 
There's a common perception that gold is really just a store of value, um, a, a beautiful metal that's got ornamental value but also has some use in industrial applications. Then when people think of gold, they don't really see it as a monetary instrument. I mean, we don't carry heavy physical coins around anymore. We, we, we have instantly settled electronic payments. And in fact, some people look at cryptocurrencies now as the next evolution in money. And I think we, we really need to ask ourselves, well, what actually is money? And, you know, we'd, we'd probably argue that money is it's three things. It's a unit of accounts, an objective, unchanging measure that's arithmetically calculable. For example, a centimetre is a centimetre, an ounce is always an ounce. Um, money is also a medium of exchange. And I, I don't mean this so much in the, the, the physical sense, I mean it more in terms of marketability. It's, it's how readily something is accepted across time and place. And that acceptance is also a function of utility. So, for example, gold has so many properties that make it suitable for use in both current and emerging industrial applications. And and the other thing is, is gold has enormous ornamental value. About 50% of all above-ground gold can be found in jewellery. So gold is, is definitely something marketable. And the final property of money is it needs to be a store of value. And... Things that have value in this world are scarce. The rarer the item, the more desirable and exchangeable it is. And that is a property that fiat currencies and a lot of cryptocurrencies do not possess. So when you do consider these three characteristics of money, gold fulfills all of them. And it has across millennia. Gold and other precious metals have always served as an unchanging measure of money. Okay, let's dive into some of the current gold market dynamics which are playing out. Gold and gold equities are viewed as a safe haven and as a result typically exhibit a low correlation to global equities, which is particularly true during drawdowns. So when markets go down, gold tends to outperform. But that's not what happened in 2022, even with a backdrop of higher inflation. Why do you think that was the case? Yeah, I mean, 2022 has definitely been an anomaly in that regard. I mean, what we've seen is that the correlation between gold and global equities has actually been higher than normal and, and rising throughout the year. So, you know, gold has, has faced two major headwinds. The first is that the US dollar has been very strong. Uh, the dollar has been strong because the Fed's been running much more hawkish policy compared to other central banks. And given gold is priced in dollars, strong dollar relative to other currencies has increased the cost of gold. The other issue, and, and this is related to why the dollar's been so strong, is that real yields have been rising in the US and we, we actually get paid nothing to hold gold. So if real interest rates rise, that is the risk-free return above inf- inflation, the opportunity cost of holding gold goes up. So throughout 2022, gold has faced a lot of competition from alternative safe haven investments. But of course now we have seen the gold price start to move, uh, pretty much from the back end of last year, as the market is starting to become concerned about the US government hitting its debt ceiling and on reports central banks around the world have stepped up purchases of gold. So we're seeing the case for owning gold strengthen. Yeah, we certainly, we certainly think so. I mean, the, the headwinds that we saw in 2022, they're, they're starting to fade. And as is often the case in markets, what were once headwinds often become tailwinds. So what we are beginning to see now is 
an easing in inflationary pressures. And the, and the market has largely now priced a normalisation in inflation expectations going forward. But what hasn't really been priced is a recession. And that's where the growing concern is. The market is now debating or beginning to debate if interest rates have risen enough to tip the world into recession. So we think, you know, it's it's likely that this policy of threatening continually higher interest rates, it, it's going to be temporary. And, you know, we are at or, or near the peak of tight policy. And the outcome ultimately is that we'll get lower real yields and potentially a weaker dollar. The other thing that we really need to think about are budget deficits and, and how they are going to be funded. So if you take the US, for example, the Congressional Budget Office, they estimate that US government debt to GDP will increase from around 100% in 2022 to 180% in 2051. And that's driven largely by the burden of, of an aging population. Now, how do you how do you fund this? I mean, sure, you could you could raise taxes, but I think that's going to be difficult for many Americans' stomach. So I think we will really enter into a permanent regime where monetary policy becomes subservient to fiscal policy. And this is something that we saw during the pandemic. And the only realistic outcome here then is more printing of fiat currency to fund higher government budget deficits. And and ultimately, what's going to happen is we will continue to devalue the US dollar and we think that will be a positive for gold or for a true money alternative. And finally... You know, we have this interesting dynamic emerging where the, the dollar's status as the world's medium of exchange might be challenged, uh, not, not to mention that gold is simply a good hedge against rising geopolitical tensions. So with all those things in mind, uh, I do think the case for gold is strengthening. And actually, that's, that's a really interesting point probably more so than ever before, we're seeing discussion and analysis around the US dollar status as the dominant reserve currency. You know, any trend to diversify foreign reserves would result in dollar selling. You know, 2022 saw the weaponization of the US dollar against countries like Russia when the White House froze Russia's US dollar reserves. And you know, recently we've also seen China promote settling energy contracts in RMB. So can you give us an insight into some of the work the team has done on this? Yeah, I think, I think we might look back at this Russia-Ukraine conflict as a pivotal point in history. I mean, the West had really hoped that by cutting Russia off from the SWIFT settlement system, in effect rendering Russia's fiat currency reserves worthless, and combined with sanctions would, would bring Russia to its knees. And the unintended consequence is that a clear message has been sent to non-aligned nations to the West. And that is the West can render national reserves useless without notice. And I mean, I, I think the, the use of the term weaponization is, is the right one. And, and, and this recent weaponization of the dollar may lead many to question just how long the dollar's status is, is going to remain unchallenged. And if you, if you consider the initial response to this, I mean, um, countries particularly in the BRIC block, so that's Brazil, Russia, India and China, um, they responded immediately to that uncertainty by, by selling fiat for bullion. Russia, as we know, has, has loosely tied the ruble to energy and commodity exports. And, and as you called out, Alison, I mean, China is promoting the use of the yuan in, in energy markets as President Xi works 
to develop closer ties with the Middle East. And an interesting, another interesting uh, point of view comes from uh, Zoltan Pazar. So he's a senior commentator at Credit Suisse. And the G7 uh, you know, has effectively capped Russian oil at a price of $60 a barrel in, in an effort to hinder Russia's efforts to finance its war in Ukraine. And Zoltan points out that Russia does have a mechanism to counter Western aggression to its benefit. And, and he suggests, or he proposes, that Russia could establish a peg with the convertibility of Russian oil to an equivalent unit of gold at market prices, which coincidentally works out to be roughly one gram of gold for one barrel of oil. So for those countries looking to purchase Russian oil cheaply, Russia could, in theory, release double the oil for the same amount of gold. It's not ideal for Russia. That's going to devalue their oil. But it is also going to double the price of gold in dollar terms. It does seem like a bad deal for Russia. But what you need to remember is that higher gold prices are going to benefit nations that have significant physical gold reserves not least Russia, China, India, for example. Now, this is a theoretical exercise, but I I would argue it is within the realm of possibility. I think the key point here is that Russia-US tensions, if they escalate, even if Russian oil hasn't been pegged to gold, the likelihood of increased gold demand to settle international trade is building. So all in all, you know, I think we are starting to see emerging signs of a, um, a trend in de-dollarisation. Mm. Now, you've painted a positive outlook for gold. How attractive is the price of gold today? Well, let's, let's start with some basic maths, and, and this will probably get those gold bugs you mentioned uh, quite excited. So the starting assumption here is that gold represents the truest form of money. And fiat currencies are a representation of money. So given gold is priced in dollars, if we were to just divide the stock of US dollars available that are, you know, the, what, what is readily convertible to cash by the volume of above ground gold, we could in theory estimate a long term fair value of gold. Now, when we do those numbers that we get a gold price of around 2,900 a ton, that's some 60% higher than today's 1900. Another way of thinking about this is that at today's prices, there just isn't enough gold in the world to convert dollars to bullion. So the price of gold needs to be 60% higher for that to become a reality. But to play devil's advocate here, is it wrong to suggest we're returning to a world where every dollar will be backed by gold? It, it is wrong to suggest that. I mean, the exercise is somewhat crude and theoretical. Um, I'm not suggesting that we will return to a world where every dollar is going to be backed by gold. But what that exercise highlights is the fundamental disconnect between today's gold price, the quantum of dollars in existence, you know, that have been printed by central banks, relative to the stock of above-ground gold. So to wrap up this episode, let's bring it back to stocks. You know, what is a good way for investors to play gold that is an attractive risk-reward opportunity? Well, firstly, let me just start with the sector. Um, gold 
gold producers are about as, as cheap as they've ever been on an absolute and world relative basis. Uh, right now, producers are trading on two and a half times EV to sales. And um, I think, you know, you could argue that the, the advent of gold ETFs have been a big driver behind that derating, um, ultimately offering investors an alternative. Um, when it comes to stocks, uh, one that we like and hold is Newcrest. So we like the positive steps the company has taken to, to maximise its portfolio by investing in projects. So, for example, one of the company's flagship assets is Lahir in Papua New Guinea. And, you know, that's that's mine that's seen throughput decrease over the last two years. But right now it's actually on track to become a, a 1 million ounce per year mine with world-class grades and lower costs. The company also has other projects that are coming online. So, for example, they have the longer-dated Red Chris. Um, they have the potential expansion at Bruce Jack. And, and combined with the production from Lahir, this should see the company's production grow 30% over the next five years in volume terms. And that's that's copper and gold. Execution of these projects will drive Newcrest all in sustaining costs to somewhere between six to, to $800 an ounce um, by the middle of the decade. And that's compared to the company's recent average of $900 an ounce and an industry average of $1,200 an ounce. So what we're saying is even if the gold price remains flat around current levels, Newcrest EBITDA can potentially double over the next five years, driven by 30% relatively high margin production growth. And the final hook to the investment case is, is Newcrest has a, a reserve life of roughly 20 years, which is meaningfully higher than, than its peers. And a valuation of $300 per reserve ounce, um, which is also more attractive than its peers. So even if the gold price doesn't move, Newcrest is still priced at a 15% free cash flow yield. Rumi, such an interesting episode. And, and thank you for taking us through all your insights today. Thanks, Alison. And uh, thank you to our listeners as well. For any further information on Antipodes, please head to our website, antipodes.com, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Individual stock commentary is illustrative only and not a recommendation to buy or sell any security.